you're listening to episode 2 of the Darkest Dogs podcast with me, Jake. Today I'm talking with Eric Savitsky. Eric is a layout designer and a founding member of the Peregrine Coast Press Cooperative. Peregrine Coast Press publish their own books, like Filmmakers Without Cameras, but also they distribute a lot of other people's books. You can check out their store to see a myriad of wild and weird things that people have put out into the world. In this episode I talk with Eric about publishing, and what it's like to be on the publishing side of picking up books for distribution. We also talk about Eric's upcoming game, Milk Bar, as well as RPG design and video games. If that sounds like something that you're interested in, then sit with us for a while and enjoy the conversation. This episode is sponsored by me, myself. Follow me on Twitter at BTMPKD to keep up with episodes of this podcast as they come out. Thanks for listening. Hello, Eric. Hi, Jake. How's it going? It's good, thank you. How's it going for you? Yeah, I mean, we we said we start at half nine, and I set an alarm clock for half eight so I could go make breakfast to get up, but I didn't get out of bed until 9.25, to be honest. And that's fair, because who's rushing you? Yeah, <laughs> it's true. After the technical difficulties, it's now 10 o'clock, so you could probably <laughs> have got out of bed at 5 to 10, and it wouldn't have made a difference. <laughs> Next time. So, Eric, tabletop RPGs is roughly what we're here to talk about today. What have you been playing lately? Oh, that's a good question. Um, what have I been playing? I have I've played a, a couple of sessions of Cyberpunk uh, 2020 recently, which has been amazing. But it's definitely not the kind of game that I'd recommend playing like pen and paper, just because it's so fiddly. Um, but the vibes are immaculate. I don't know if you've ever touched or read any of the cyberpunks. I haven't. I've played Shadowrun quite a bit, but not cyberpunk. I've not. I've not I've, the only thing I've heard about Shadowrun is that it's a bit fucking insane. It is very insane, yeah. So is it like, is it magic? Is the magic evolved? There is. Yeah, there is. It's kind of like fantasy role-playing, but lifted up and put into the cyberpunk dystopian future. So there's orcs, there's trolls... There's magic, there's all that stuff, just with a, a cyberpunk skin on it. Right, okay. And cyberpunk's just like, just straight up hard sci-fi. Um, and it, it like, the, there's a lot of joy it expresses in talking about, because it's got like the, the fight system called Friday Night Firefight. And like the intro paragraph is like, yeah, we straight up took all these statistics and shit from FBI, like shooting reports. Um, because in that game, like straight up, you, you roll to hit, and then you roll for, like, hit location. Um, and your character only has, like, there's, like, a wound system, basically. It gets a bit, it gets a bit fiddly. Um, but if you, like, roll a 10 and shoot somebody in the head, that does double damage, right? And, like, a single pistol round can make your head explode. It's definitely a fuck around and find out kind of game. But the frustrating thing is that, like, character creation just takes so long. So, like, in, like you're into the odds and mock bogs. You can just roll up a new character in, you know, in, like, 30 seconds. And it's fine if they die a horrible death, but in Cyberpunk, it's like, it's, it's hard work. It's arduous. The longer that character creation takes, I find that I become a lot more attached to those characters. When a, when a system has a very in-depth character creation, I'll start doing like 
extracurricular things. Like I'll be like, oh, I'm going to make a playlist for this character. What are the songs that have vibes for this character? Yeah, and that's that's so in keeping with the with the tone of cyberpunk. And like, and then they die in one hit, yeah. and all of that, <laughs> all of that, like ten hours of prep work is deleted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a lot of fun anyway because it's purely like by the seat. What's the saying? Edge of your seat, I guess. Role playing. You, uh, yeah, I think I know what what you were saying. By the by by the seat of your pants or something. Yes, yeah, some shit like that. That that doesn't sound like that's right. <laughs> and then, yeah, you, you get into like you know you go into a bar and you get into a bar fight and then you somehow try and shoot some prick on the other side of the bar and he dodges and then you dodge his shot and it becomes like a like an almost like Matrix esque firefight, which is great. It's a lot of fun. Have you ever had it on a tabletop game where you've you've got into a dramatic fight with an enemy, an opponent, whoever you're up against? They shoot you, they miss. You shoot them, yeah. You miss. They shoot you, they miss. And have you have you seen that scene in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead where they flip a coin like tails like a thousand <laughs> times in a row? No. And you get into that same situation in the tabletop game where it's like miss, miss, miss. And you start wondering if it's even possible for either of you to land a hit. Yeah, so many times. And and the worst is like I when I played a lot of five E, um, I had like a campaign that went for like over a year, which was fun. But we were running Stone King's Thunder for 5e, which is all about giants, right? It's just, it's like a massive, the book's not very good, basically, but it, it gives you this whole like continent and just like three lines explanation for like every location on that map. So it's a real like, it's a lot of work to run. Anyway, fucking giants, dude. It's so hard to hit a giant. And my, my party came up across that quite, quite a lot. And I think because 5e is so like, you know, people play it so narratively. That to sit there, sling dice and keep missing, it just kind of like really takes the wind out of people's sails. It's definitely a narrative challenge because you try and describe, well, maybe you don't, but I try and describe combats quite fast paced and dramatic, but there are only so many ways you can describe a miss over and over again repeatedly (laughs) in a sequence before you start feeling like you've transitioned into some absurd world. So, Eric, you founded Peregrine Coast Press, right? You're an indie publishing cooperative. You sell books and zines, indie tabletop RPGs, and things that are not indie tabletop RPGs. How did you make the decision to get into that? What was the thought process? Um, I hated my job, dude. <laughs> I hate my job. Well, my day job that I'm no longer at. Who, who doesn't? Yeah, exactly. I think, like... Working a shit job has really like <laughs> every single employer I've had in the past few years has like radicalized me in some way. And so I've always been like, you know, commie leaning, commie adjacent, I suppose. It was like that realization one day that I've run a, run a couple of Kickstarters for filmmakers like cameras. Um, and I know Hugh, who's a, you know, who's a friend who handles all the fulfillment side of things. And filmmakers like cameras has put me in touch with so many different people. And I thought, Oh, fuck it. Why not, why not just give it a go? And so it really stemmed from, cause filmmakers like cameras, um, just for context is a film and games magazine that we publish and it's nonfiction. So it's very much, um, like essays on film and games. 
that quite personal stuff that I would love to see more of from games media. But obviously games media is, is going a certain direction right now uh, with all the layoffs that just makes that kind of stuff not really feasible, unfortunately. And so I was like, right, well, I've run a couple of Kickstarters. I know how to raise money. And my goal has always been to get people paid fairly. And so we thought, yeah, why not like make this official, make this a thing and actually work with people who aren't just me? Because making your own stuff is fucking exhausting. It is, yeah. But it must be exhausting running a press as well, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. You haven't escaped the exhaustion, but you're doing something where you're channeling it into something that you want to do rather than something that you don't want to do. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's hard because I don't really, you know, again, like I said, I'm you know, commie adjacent, commie leaning. I'm not a business type person at all. And so like having the press become like a, a functioning business that pays for our time is difficult. But I think we're slowly, slowly getting there. This is something I spoke about with Justin in the last episode, actually, was there is this sort of discordance between creative people and you know, capitalism and like myself as well, like genuinely feeling like a slime bag when I have to try and sell this thing that I've made that I'm not good at selling things. I don't want to sell things, but I also like surviving and being alive and, you know, having the money to be able to do that. And there's a real like discordance that indie creators have to go through in recognizing that you've made something and now it's up to you to to put it out there. And if you don't do that, then... Yeah, how else will people know that you exist, right? Right. And and it takes it takes publishers like you guys, who are trying to do this in the most fair possible way, to wrestle back control over how money is distributed around... It, it sucks how much we're beholden to platforms outside of our own control, right? Because we, you know, we, we have, like, Google Analytics set up for our shop, right? And at some point in February, our analytics just like for absolutely no reason whatsoever completely dipped, right? Up to, it was like over 50% overnight, just gone, right? And so then we, we scramble and we have to figure out, okay, well, why why has Google suddenly decided not to drive traffic to our store? And then you, you get into shit like SEO, right? And you have to modify your shop and your listings in accordance to these guidelines that like only Google cares about, right? And they're completely arbitrary because people who want to, you know, who are looking for like dope RPGs or, or small press published stuff, they're not looking for like the concentration of keywords on your page, right? Or how many H1 versus H2 headers you have on the page. And so like that really kind of contributed to a fair bit of burnout that we've all been feeling recently is that like, Sydney, who's our writer and editor, you know, rather than doing the writing and editing stuff that she signed up to do, is is now actually kind of having to take the charge on making our website SEO friendly. And that's just boring. Like, it's not a fun job. Unless you work in SEO, in which case, Godspeed and power to you, I suppose. But I guess, though, if indie creators don't try and wrestle this back somehow, then it goes back to how it's been up until now, where you're not just beholden to these systems, but you're beholden to the arbiters who decide what does and doesn't get distributed, like big publishers. And that whole system of 
you know, having to like pitch to other people, hey, will you publish my book? No, 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 no. Until the individual creator burns out with nobody having ever seen their thing. Versus today where I can go out and, and kickstart something and print something by myself, you know, if I want to. So it sucks. It's, it's a fight, but it's, it's, it's good in some senses, I think. Yeah, for sure. And there's always like, like a big conflict for me internally is that, so PCP is, it's a co-op, right? Which means that we have some, uh, we owe something to the community by, by nature of being a co-op. But I'm always like conscious of the fact that ultimately, you know, the capital that we accumulate or, you know, the social capital we accumulate is kind of concentrated on the private entity in the end. Um, and I, I, w- I want to do more work towards helping other people do what we do. Um, and it's like, I want to make a living, but I also don't want to make a living by like being a digital landlord. That's the capitalist system. That That's how it was designed. It's designed for you to tread over other people to get your own. And right now there's not... Like, I, I, I get the sense from you that while you feel like you're going in the right direction and you're doing the right thing, you still feel like you have to get your hands a little bit dirty in order to do it. And that's because there is no alternative. You know, you can't exist without money, but just touching the money leaves a stain on your fingers. It's that scene of, um, you know, Macbeth, what, like, trying to wash his hands clean and not being able to. Well, I think you're doing the right thing. I think you're going in the right direction and you're doing well. And I think people like you for it. Like, it seems like uh, PCP is, is popular and people like working with you. Just in discords and things, I see a lot of positive stuff about you guys and what you were doing. Thank you. Yeah, that makes that makes it all easier. Like I said, just trying not to concentrate capital towards us and like try to <laughs> like with the fulfillment stuff. You know, like it's ultimately stuff that you can do yourself, um, but it's like the ease of paying us to do it. You will distribute other people's books for them. That's what you're talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So if I've got, if I've printed a book, say I've done a Kickstarter and I've printed out a hundred copies and that's going to come to me and then I've got to label each one and take it to the post office and then they're going to send me back because the, you know, I didn't do the labels properly and then, oh, yeah. Yeah, you didn't feel like you CN60s correctly and whatever. Yeah. And you, you just, instead of sending it to me, I send it to you. You guys fulfill that. Yeah. So as a press, a lot of books must pass across your table. What's your favourite? Oh, that's such a difficult question. Uh, I think you asked me this at UKG last week as well. Did I? I think so, yeah. Damn it! Should have saved it for the podcast. But it's good because I've, I can re- I've rehearsed my answer already. I think the standouts right now are Vaults of Arn by Leo Hunt. Um, the deluxe edition that was published by Games Omnivorous because it's in this, it's printed in this like Pantone blue covers, um, with fabulous design by Guntijo. I don't really know how to pronounce his name, but I know on Twitter. Um, because it's this like weird tech sci fi post apocalyptic setting, like really based on Dune, um, with you know, you, you bright blue sands and giant worms, but it's like a really good toolbox for setting generation as well. So it's got like hundreds of tables 
um, for you to make your own vaults of barn and treasures and, you know, all the other kind of good stuff. And I met Leo um, at the pub a few months ago, and he's a lovely guy. So I guess you spoke about um, what stands out, and I guess that's a part of the, the work that you do, right, is curation. These books come across your desk, and, well, I guess this is kind of going back a little bit to what we were just speaking about, but you kind of have to decide which ones you want to pick up and sell. So when that book hits the desk, what are some of the things that make a book stand out to you? For me, and I'll be honest here, it's not. This is probably like an uncouth thing to say, but I'm I'm very much like graphically minded. Um, I kind of, it, it's kind of wanky to say as well, but I kind of see PCP as a bit of a, like a boutique retailer in that I like to retail stuff that really like is gorgeous, like features really gorgeous prose um, in one package. So I, you know, if it just looks pretty, but what's inside is, is kind of boring, I try to avoid that. And likewise, if, if the words are great, but also it's not much to look at, I also kind of try and steer away from that, to be honest. There's a big push in indie RPGs towards productization, um, which I suppose we're, we're contributing to, really, because the whole nature of ZineQuest was like, make something that can be printed at home and like folded and stapled together. And I love, I love that stuff, you know, I've got like baskets full of zines like that. But I think for like the vision for, for PCP was for you to scroll down the page and whatever you click at is like the full package, you know, right, really showcasing kind of the best of the best um, of the scene. I guess for indie RPG creators, that sort of question, like what makes a thing stand out? There was never going to be a like a secret answer, right? Like if you just do this one thing, then you're going to stand out on the table. I guess it was just just be good, <laughs> just make good stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I think that there was a thread that um, Johan Nor of Mokbog uh, made on Twitter where he said, "Yeah, he, all it took for Mokbog was to scroll down the front page of Drive Through RPG, where all the covers were like reds and browns, and like still to this day." You scroll down through the, the front page of Drive Through RPG, and it's like, oh, there's Morkbog, right? Because it's fucking bright yellow amongst a sea of kind of muted colours. And I think that kind of distinctive style, you know, like motherships, white on black, Morkbog with the with the bright yellow, Voltsovan with the bright blue. I think it's just about like, for me, I love the printed matter, and like seeing that love come through as like this is an artifact, right? This is a physical book that's printed on paper that you chose specifically for its hand feel because you like it and not because it's like the default option on Mixum. That goes a long way for me. I've got Into the Odd here in front of me and it's it's an artifact. Yes. I hadn't even opened it up before I bought it. I just looked at it and was like, I want to have that on my shelf. And and so much of Into the Odd like leans into that whole like weird Victorian-esque aesthetic. But you do make a point about things like Zine Quest, where there's... What point am I trying to make as I say this, I guess? There's a push towards just kind of making like sm like small things. Like, just, just get a, a thing out there, like 16 pages or a trifold pamphlet or, or something, just to get stuff out there. And, and that's good, it's great. But it's created like a wide ocean of stuff. Do you know what I mean? And then the curation becomes the challenge of what really stands out in that wide ocean of stuff that has now appeared. When there's like a, you know, waves and waves of zines 
of of all of all kinds and then you've got something like into the odd just floats along on the surface just the way that the book is presented stands out before you even engage in the content at all like the writing inside could be awful the the mechanics could be terrible the game might play like absolute shit but i've still bought the book <laughs> based on the way it looks just because of it, how it looks yeah and that's kind of superficial because there's great writers out there and great game designers who might be just disappearing under a wave of stuff that just kind of looks a little bit better. Yeah, for sure. And that's, yeah, that's tough. That's really, really tough. But I think equally on the other side, like Mothership, and we kind of talked about this at the pub after UKG as well, but like, like your Mork Borgs and your Motherships have really started a design trend where people have tried to, you know, kind of go off and follow those general design sensibilities um, to the point where that aesthetic is also kind of worn out now, at least to me. I kind of look at Mockbog stuff, the third party stuff, and I'm like, oof, it's, it's all starting to blend together. Yeah, it's, t- it's time for something new. Yeah, but I think because we're so, you know, most of the people that I know from the indie RPG scene has all been entirely through Twitter, and it, we kind of have these like atomized communities on discord but ultimately like most people know most other people in the scene like if i told you who you know will jobst you you know who that is probably right so talking um, (laughs) it feels really superficial as well but talking about the stuff that you like on twitter really does absolute bits for people because you know like i know chris Bissett. say i talk about something chris Bissett comes across my tweet um buys a copy of your like six page kind of plain black words on white paper zine likes what is in there tweets about it and that goes out to a bigger audience and so like i think making those connections and and knowing people is such a great part of being part of this community i don't know i don't want to use the word community but this space in general just briefly going back to what you were saying about the sort of oversaturation of of morkborg likes i guess there's something in that, like, Morkborg, the design of it was Johan's voice, right? And obviously, like, a lot of the writing and, and stuff inside was Pele, I think. But the design, the way it looks, is is Johan. And then other people see that and they think that's great. And they they try and emulate it. And that's good as well because it, it adds a sort of consistency to the Morkborg voice. This is what Morkborg is, and all these supplements kind of complement that. Mm-hmm. And so it was such a genius part of like branding work, right? Because you make stuff for Morkborg, which is already kind of free advertising for Morkborg, and you make it look like Morkborg, and so people are like, "Ooh, what like what is this thing that looks so different to everything else on the scene right now?" Which like making Morkborg stuff was like literally the first game jam I ever joined on itch and it was one of the first things I ever put out so like I get it but there is a I don't know if this is a word but there is a kind of pastichification of the whole thing where you can sort of over time start to see it as sort of like a people are not making things with their own voice you can see that they're they're trying to emulate Johan's voice and it's not always the same some people nail it but sometimes you'll pick something up and you think this maybe isn't quite you 
I probably did that myself. I made a third party Morgborg thing and tried to emulate the style. And like when I look back on it, I like it. I think I think it was a good thing. It was one of the first things I ever did in the TTRPG space. But it's not actually my voice. I'm just trying to copy what I think like Johan's voice is to to be consistent with that style. And at some point you've got to break away from that and you've got to say like what's my thing that I want to make that's going to be mine. And then you probably start to stand out. Yeah, no, I I I definitely feel like that's been happening. I think like people look at Morgborg and to make something more boggy, they kind of put words down on a paper, like on the sheet, and they think, okay, I'm just going to skew this a bit, right? Or I'm going to rotate this a little bit. But Morgborg, you know, Johan's got like years of experience in commercial branding and marketing, right? So the basics he knows in and out, and he knows how to break them. Um, and like the, the genius of Morgborg is that it looks so unintentional, right? It looks so broken, but actually, like, all the rules are being followed, right? Or if they're being broken, they're being broken very intentionally. And so you, you kind of have to get to that point of knowing the basics of, of topography to be able to do Morkborg well, rather than just like, yeah, I'll just take this header and I'll just rotate it a little bit. But, and I think like, I don't know if you saw going around recently has been Clayton Notestein's InDesign template, which is gorgeous. Definitely check it out um, because it's, Clayton's just selling this template that you can uh, pop into InDesign or Affinity Designer that has this very like into the odd type look for you to use with like all the baselines set up, all the columns set up, the grid set up. And it's like an educational tool as well. So you can kind of get your head around the basics of, of topography and, and layout. And I think that kind of stuff is is crucial. And I kind of I kind of fear that we're gonna see a lot of games come out in the next couple of months that all look the same. But I think if people get out of it, like a knowledge of topography, I think we'll we'll be stronger for it. Yeah, because there's things that, like I'm, I do the layout of my books, but I'm not good at it. I don't really have a background in it other than what I've picked up from being around other people that are better at it than I am and learning from them. Yeah, which is the best way to learn, really. But every time, like, I think I'm doing okay. Like, I'll land into a conversation where I'm like, everyone else knows so much more than I do. Like, grids and things like that. Like, Into the Odd is a good example because the page size is unconventional, I think. It's not actually A5, if I recall correctly. There's a whole thing about, like, the grids and gutter lines, and I was trying to read this article that um, that was about that. And I was just thinking, like, when you read something like that, you realise, I don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it just feels like divination most of the time, right? There's a concept called the Van de Graaff canon, which is a way to calculate your margins. And and it's like, you basically, you draw like lines on a page. I, I, I might share my screen with you. I'll like send you a picture later on. Yeah, send, send me a picture because I can put it in show notes then. Um, it's fucking squiggles, dude, right? But it's the way that like old scribes would calculate page sizes to be like, to have enough margin room for like your thumb to rest in and for marginalia to be drawn into. And there's a couple of pages where I used it in filmmakers without cameras. And there's so many of these different canons and ways to, to frame pages that are like deeply mathematical. And whenever somebody talks about it, I'm just like, hey, this is this is beyond me. So let's talk about things that you've made because you do layout and design, right? Filmmakers without cameras, unexplained Scotland. 
transmission for them. Now that you're exhausting yourself with putting all your energy into running a press, have you stopped? Have you, have you found that you don't yet have the time or have you found that you don't have the time anymore to work on these sort of creative outlet things? Um, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Um, we've, we've just done a really big piece of like contract work for a charity called Safe in Our World. And so it's, it's always nice to be contract, you know, contacted by somebody who says, look, I love the work, I love the work that you guys do and let's, let's work together. But it is ultimately like contract work. Um, and it's been great because it's like the whole process and working with those guys has been awesome. But like, I have been trying to steal little bits of time. Um, you know, in the evenings to, to work on my own projects. But it's, it, yeah, it's exhausting because there's always an email that needs answering. There's always stock that needs buying or like finance stuff that needs working out, you know? So of those things then, Filmmakers Without Cameras, Unexplained Scotland, Transmission for Them, anything else you've worked on, which of these things feels the most to you like your voice? Because not all of them were, were solely you, right? Some of them were collaborations with, with other people. But we're talking about you know, Mork Borg is Johan's voice. Which of these things would you hold up and say, this is me? Good question. Um, filmmakers Without Cameras is an interesting one because it's a bit of an eclectic mess, <laughs> right? That's not a good way to sell it, but I, it, it's been like thoroughly reflective of my whole journey as a layout designer because issue one was tiny. You know, it was only like 40 pages or something and it came out pretty much at, at the very start of when I started publishing um, back in... 2021 2020 something like that but i also it was very heavily inspired by the artists i was working with you know i would say like here's here's what the piece is about just illustrate something and then i would kind of like work around that because my art direction skills are are just pretty much non-existent and like each issue then would be stuff that i've learned since then so iteratively that you know issue three was i think my best work but it was always inspired by the kind of things that people were writing about, the things that they were in- illustrating. So there's a lot of like pastiche and kind of responses to the graphic design of films and games. And then kind of equally, transmission for them was my kind of take on mothership by going heavy on the blacking out the entire page and just having white text, which is really striking, but it was so difficult to print. Yeah, I don't know. It's tough. I think Milk Bar, the one, the game that I'm working on right now, is probably the closest to my voice because it feels so personal. It's a game about like Poland in a post-communist sci-fi world, um, and it's set in my hometown, right? So it's yeah, it's it's very deeply personal, um, and it's going to be very deeply personal. Completely going on a tangent. What what I love about um, Naughty Dog games like Uncharted One, Two, and Three, and Four. Oh, and The Last of Us, is that you can kind of see the lessons that they've learned in each game, like get carried over to the next game. And the like the following game is always like the thing that we did previously, but better. And that's kind of how I've been looking at my design process. Because Filmmakers 1 was like my Kaiser Sozi moment. It's like, I raised lots of money to fund this thing. I was like, I have fucking no idea what I'm doing at all. And just successive Kickstarters that we've ran and, and things that we've published have just been like, I have no idea what I'm doing, but it's getting better, I hope. So it's been like a very public like learning process because I never went to art school or anything like that. I studied filmmaking. So graphic design is, is completely new to me. I just want to latch on to something that you said a minute ago because I think it's an interesting question for people who are also doing this, who are learning as they go with you know art and layout. You said that in Filmmakers 1, you'd maybe commission a piece of artwork or something and you'd let that artwork 
form the layout of the page. So the art would go in and then you'd lay out around the artwork. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wonder how common that is in comparison to someone who would sit down. I guess it's the opposite of what I do on, on a lot of my projects where I'll lay out a page and I'll block out a space and I'll say, art goes here. And then I'll commission a piece of art to fit into that space because I, I don't make my own art. I get art from other people. So I need to lay out the whole book and then go to other people and say, hey, can you fill something in here? Not that either of those is necessarily the right or wrong way to do it. Sometimes I do work around artwork, but it's interesting to think about how different people have different processes and that yours was very much laying out around something else. Yeah, and because to be honest, part of that was, I was like, right, well, the people people I'm working with, the artists I'm working with, I've all been to art school, right? And they, they know these like lofty things that I don't know, like color theory, right? And and perspective and balance. So I was like, well, if I just let them do like the work, I can just extract a color palette from that and, and kind of cut out some of the work that I have to do, which was just a way of dealing with doing something that I've never done before, right? Just kind of minimizing the work that I have to do. But obviously, the layout, you know, not to say that layout's easy because uh, it's not. I'm I'm trying to get better at doing the opposite and actually, yeah, like doing flat plans and or at least I say I am. I was going to do that with Filmmakers 3 and that never materialised, so. There's benefits to both ways of doing it and I think having the ability to bounce back and forth between the two is probably a good skill to have because sometimes you want to sit down and you have a crystal clear vision of what a spread should look like and other times it's nice to to take something from someone else and have to force yourself out of your comfort zone to create something that looks different to what you necessarily would have done if you sat down and, and designed the spread before the artwork came in. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it kind of becomes more like a collaborative process as well. Um, cause you kind of, you know, say to the artist, um, you know, go wild. Like here's, here's what the piece is about. Do, do whatever you want with it, which I don't know. I, I like no nobody's none of the artists that I've worked with have said that's an awful thing to do. So <laughs> hopefully they didn't mind it, and whatever they submitted, I was just like, yeah, this is perfect. Milk Bar. Tell us all about it. So, Milk Bar is the pitch. OSR sci-fi role-playing in a post-communist Poland. And it kind of hugely inspired by the work of Simon Stalinhag, who I've been a huge fan of for, for years now. Actually, Tales from the Loop was one of the first RPGs I bought outside of D&D. Another very good-looking book. Yeah, yeah. Another Free League book, so I imagine it was... Dan Algstrand probably who who laid it out who's who's great by the way he's part of the Stock, Stockholm cartel as well and I met him at Dragon Meat last year yeah so Simon Stalinhag and then I'm also I, I love base building in games but not in not in like the survival 
horror games that are really popular right now. Like, I, I don't care about placing, like, floor tiles one by one, right? I, I care about, like, the progression of, like, Monteregioni in Assassin's Creed 2, right? Where you have tangible benefits from the work that you put into building this space up, um, which I thought was actually really fitting for an OSR-type game. Again, because it's, you know, you're, you're communists who are trying to rebuild your city after, you know, the, the Soviets have, have left it, after they've drained it of resources or whatever. And milk bars are these government-subsidized restaurants, um, and they still exist in Poland right now, where workers could go and eat kind of homemade food. And so I thought it'd be, it's kind of the perfect setup, right? You've got this ruined city, you've got your little milk bar in the middle, full of communists who have banded together for the kind of mutual aid. Um, and then you've got that sci-fi aspect of like the post-Soviet. And you can go crazy with that, right? You, you call it sci-fi and you can have like other worlds down in, in research bases and all kinds of weird shit to explore. So I thought that it fit the OSR loop really well, right? And then your progression, obviously OSR type games are not about getting a plus ones and plus twos. It's about like getting tools to deal with situations, which I thought like, you know, your milk bar starts off as maybe just a kitchen, right? But then you find an engineer, right, who can set up like a radio relay, or you find someone who can build, a, you know, barracks and an armory and, and a smithy and all these other things. And your milk bar then becomes like this base of operations that give your characters benefits and, and tools to deal with situations while you go delving into these abandoned Soviet research bases full of weird sci-fi shit. So you don't begin the game by punching a tree? No, yeah, n none of that. <laughs> you don't have to collect wood so that you can build a pickaxe, okay? No, fuck that. I don't know what it is. I don't, yeah, I, I don't know what makes those games so popular. I guess people just like building homes and stuff, but it's not for me. I hate to do this because it always sounds kind of reductive, but as you were describing it, I wondered if something like Frostpunk might have been a bit of an inspiration. I've never played Frostpunk, you know? So I, I have another another one, and again, I might be completely wrong, but I, I just like to shoot these shots and see if I'm anywhere near the mark. When I first met you, in person, you were wearing a Disco Elysium t-shirt. When I looked at Milk Bar, I thought, and I don't know why, I, I don't know what made that connection in my mind, but I thought I got a little bit of a Disco Elysium vibe from it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Disco Elysium is, is, I can't speak highly enough of it. I wrote my master's dissertation about Disco Elysium, actually. So, yeah, so it, it, it really plays a big part in my life. I don't think I could articulate why I made that connection, though. There must be some subtle, hidden thing. Big cubby vibes, I guess. So when you first played Disco Elysium, how did you play it, ideologically speaking? Yeah, I went cummy cop, fully. But there was that weird, like, I didn't play it honestly, I don't think. There was a, a weird bit of, like, tugging at the game to figure out, like, what it would actually permit and what was necessary. Like, I'm, I'm ashamed to say that m my first playthrough, Harry got quite into the phrenology of, like, Measurehead. And I was like, fuck, I don't know, actually, this huge guy is saying so many words at me. I don't fully understand what he's saying. And also, I feel like I have to agree, otherwise he's not going to let me through. And that ended up with Harry internalizing it and, and just kind of like being like a skull measuring prick. So I'm not happy with that choice. But other than that, 
So did you feel like the mechanics of the game constrained your investigation of the ideology? Like you felt like if you didn't say this thing, like you had to pick the right dialogue choice to get through and progress through the game, even if you didn't necessarily want to do that. Yeah, because uh, I think you kind of like conditioned to do that a little bit by by video games in general. I'm sure there are other ways of getting around Measurehead without <laughs> agreeing with this phrenology, you know. But there's a part in Path of Exile in what was Act Two. I don't know. I haven't played that game in a long time. You go into this ancient pyramid, and you come up to this altar, and it's literally blocking your path to progress, and you have to push it out the way which unleashes this darkness upon the land. But you have no choice but to to do it. Otherwise, you cannot progress in the game at all. Like, the game, it's fixed. It's completely fixed. And you can't bend or break that boundary. And, the, and do you know that that's going to happen when it tells you to move this statue? Have you played Path of Exile? I've played a little bit. I don't know what kind of person is the kind of person who would actually read all of the text in Path of Exile and, and take in that lore. So maybe there's something that warns you that that would happen. But it's not that kind of game. It's the kind of game where you move forwards, you explode enemies, and they drop loot on the ground and you pick up that loot. Yeah, numbers go up and lizard brain gets happy. Yeah, exactly. That's the game that it is. So when you come to that point, no one's thinking... I don't think anyone other than me probably thought, like, hang on a minute. <laughs> Isn't it a bit weird that the only reason I've pushed this thing out of the way is so that I can progress the mechanics of the game? But a lot of games are like that. That's why Spec Ops The Line really falls flat for me. Like, and it's regarded so highly as like, oh, this is next level video game storytelling. And, and maybe that speaks about the kind of storytelling we get in video games. You know, the, the like white phosphorus scene where, oh, Turns out there were kids, you know, there were children there. You've just, you were given no choice but to drop white phosphorus on this gang of like terrorists, whatever. And oh, turns out it's actually full of kids. You know, it's like a bit of a gotcha that feels, I guess it's probably relevant to the themes of the game, um, but it's still kind of weak. I think like in something like that and Path of Exile, you have to embrace that the game mechanics and the game narrative are not sort of like concordant with each other necessarily. Whereas something like Disco Elysium very much presents the idea of like choice and being able to make decisions and consequences matter and things like that. But it's still bounded by the mechanics of it being a game. It's still constrained within this digital world that has limits. It's been a long time since I played it and I haven't completed it, but m the way I remember understanding it, and it's quite dense to understand, I think, I remember it being a sort of back and forth pull between sort of like socialism and fascism, essentially, which is an interesting exploration, but it's difficult for someone like me where my ideology doesn't necessarily fit like on either of those spectrums. I guess I'll say, like, I'm just a weirdo vegan anarchist. So a lot of the sort of, like, socialist decisions and a lot of the fascist decisions, I'm sitting there thinking, like, I don't... I, I don't want to click any of these buttons. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think, like, the the fun thing about this go is that it, it it's very much... Because obviously it was made by, you know, a group of disaffected alcoholic communists, and that game feels like a really thorough exploration of communism written by people who have spent years like 
dealing with people complaining about communism? Do you care about spoilers? I, I, I really do want to go back and play through the game, but I'm not worried about spoilers because I think if I do go back and play it, I'm just going to have to, I'm actually going to have to role play. I'm going to have to recognize that, you know, I can't play the game the way I would want to make choices. So I'm going to have to be like, fuck it. I'm something else while I play this game. So go ahead. Spoil away. Cool. Um, yeah, to, to the point where the final, the guy who committed the crime, who shot the soldier, was actually this like weirdo loner communist from, um, who was like living on this small island, completely separated from everyone else. And he was a veteran of like the communist um, revolution in that world, to the point where he was just like, he, be- he became so twisted and like so caught up in his own ideology that he, he justified like committing horrible acts and just being a like a misogynistic racist prick and that felt like a really honest kind of introspection almost okay last question for you anyone listening to this who is maybe following in your footsteps who's a little bit back there behind you maybe they're trying to think about starting up a press maybe they're getting into layout and design what advice would you give to them oh that's a tough that's such a tough question what advice what would I give? Two pieces of advice. Right. First one, start a mailing list. <laughs> That's going to be your most powerful tool for like getting to people. Um, second piece of advice, make friends. Right. Get Find people who are okay with sharing like direct feedback with you. Find people who aren't afraid to, to let you know what, what they think. And I think get out of the habit of idolizing people and make connections with people who are on the same level with you because I think you, you know, rising tide and all that. Thank you, Eric. Thanks for coming and talking today. Really appreciate it. It's been awesome. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on, Jake.